Making the right engineering choices in today's wide landscape of cloud technologies is hard. Predicting the future in order to invest in companies in this space has the same level of complexity. The cost of cloud computing is going down, but the volume of total required space and processing power is going up. The open source community is growing and improving, but people are increasingly willing to buy software that will save them time. There are many countervailing trends. Capital is flowing into Silicon Valley at a faster rate than can be sensibly absorbed by the number of quality companies that exist. A decent product won't have trouble raising money, but a decent investor has to choose wisely among the huge selection of available opportunities. Lenny Pruce works at Amplify Partners, where he is currently focused on the cloud-native space. In this episode, we talk about what cloud-native means and how to navigate the complex landscape, whether you are an engineer or an investor. I enjoyed this conversation a lot, and I want to thank Tom Tungas for introducing me to Lenny. Tom's episode was a while ago. We talked about his book, Winning with Data. And if you like this episode, I encourage you to check out that one. Lenny Pruce is an investor with Amplify Partners. Lenny, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. You've been studying the cloud-native space and writing about it, trying to figure out what investments to make, what technologies are, getting traction. What does the term cloud-native mean? Yeah, so I think there's a couple things to unpack. I think starting at the highest level, you know, cloud-native is really an architectural paradigm, a software architectural paradigm where that describes that you know how apps are are built as resilient distributed systems that you know scale to meet the demands of millions or tens of millions of users you know this paradigm was really sort of informed and inspired by you know warehouse scale computing that takes place inside of organizations like Facebook and Google and then you know when you think about what a cloud native app is there's sort of this technical definition that people have globbed onto where you know it's microservices oriented so microservices you know that being that these applications are composed of sort of discrete, loosely coupled services. These applications then are dynamically scheduled and orchestrated. And then the container is the functional unit. So that's sort of the technical definition. And then, you know, there's this notion of the cloud native stack that we've been delving into. And that's really sort of the infrastructure and tools that go into, you know, building, building, deploying, and managing these applications. So, and what, well, one way that you frame this cloud-native architecture is in terms of these layers. Maybe you could describe the layers of the cloud-native architecture. Sure thing. So when we talk about the layers, we're really talking about all the components that go into running a production-grade distributed system. You know, When you're running a, an application that lives mm. as a monolithic code base on a single server, that's one thing. But running decentralized apps that you're trying to scale to millions of end users, that brings about unprecedented levels of complexity. And so the tools needed to build these apps and the components in the stack needed to support them are different. Um, just a few years ago, nobody really talked about things like service discovery or scheduling. If anything, these were, these were elements confined to the world of you know, high-performance parallel computing. Um, now these are household tools that are part of everyone's lexicon, uh, anyone who's trying to build microservices. Um, and to provide a little backstory, um, as you know, when Docker came out in 2013 and as this market started to to mature, um, I started mapping all these projects and all these companies to try to make some order out of it. And so I, I put a bunch of these projects in a stack to try to visualize how everything fit together. Hmm. 
um, and kept tabs on this ecosystem. Then last year, uh, we were we teamed up with the Cloud Native Computing Foundation and the Technical Oversight Committee, which at the time itself was voting on the CNCF uh, reference architecture. And the goal of this was to really provide a more definitive taxonomy and reference design that would detail many of the prevailing projects and companies that make up this ecosystem and make some order out of the chaos just to give folks who are entering the ecosystem or actually build or practitioners who are building these systems a better sense of how everything mapped together. Um, ultimately, uh, that work was represented by the Cloud Native mm -hmm. Landscape, which was a document that we released last, uh, at last year's KubeCon in Seattle. Um, now to get back to the layers, again, these are loose definitions and all of this relates to the elements that are needed to run a distributed systems. But if we want to walk through the stack, you know, at the bottom is the infrastructure layer. And obviously this relates to the physical and or virtual compute network and storage resources that serve as the building blocks for any application. Um, moving up, we've got the provisioning layer and this represents sort of the tools needed uh, to stand up and manage those infrastructure resources. These are tools that are th uh, things like Terraform, Puppet, Chef, um, and also things that are necessary to secure this infrastructure. Um, moving up, there's the runtime layer, and that's where the container engine, most notably Docker, lives. And that's responsible for operating system level virtualization. Hmm. Um, in this layer, you, you tend to include also things like cloud-native storage and network resources that interface with the container engine and extend down into the infrastructure layer. Um, then you get into the orchestration layer, which is really the management plane. Here you have tools like Kubernetes, um, Docker Swarm, Mesos, uh, as well as elements like service discovery and service management. Um, and most basically, this layer is really, really plays the role of a conductor in an orchestra. Um, it takes all the underlying resources and services and composes them into a logical application and serves that to your end users. Um, finally, uh, above that is what we call the application definition and deployment layer. Um, and these are really a, a bevy of tools or a, a bunch of different tools that are responsible for uh, that developers use really to, to build their apps and then to deploy them. So things like languages and frameworks, uh, CICD platforms, source code management, and the like. Um, the important thing to note about all of this is that, you know, this, this strives to be canonical, if not an overly simplistic representation. Um, you know, in real life, uh, elements of all these layers extend up and down. And at the end of the day, this is really a sort of a three-dimensional, dynamic, living, breathing organism. Absolutely. And I think a lot of this has basically been driven by this movement towards cloud infrastructure. And the shift towards cloud infrastructure was such a fundamental change that it led to all of these other advancements that improve the efficiency of our stack. Ultimately, they improve the leverage that an individual programmer has. The cost, in some ways, is the complexity, although I guess there was just perhaps equal complexity in an on-premise setup 20 years ago, but the complexity manifested in different ways. Now the complexity manifests in, in ways like we've got, you know, you've got so many layers like you just described, and you've also got the observability question, you know, you have an entire side of your application devoted to understanding what is going on in your application, and there are a million products around this, I'm sure we'll get into that. What are the canonical problems that developers are dealing with in the cloud-native ecosystem. Obviously, one way to look at all of these things is that they are creating opportunities for more leverage, but another way of looking at it is, well, 
especially from an investment point of view, is as we get these increasing layers that are adding leverage, there are also new problems that crop up from an investor point of view. I'm sure some of those look like opportunities. So what are those canonical problems? Of course, uh, you know any new platform shift, uh, a customer's problems or pain points are, are really a startup's opportunities. So the way I've seen this ecosystem evolve was you know, Docker came along and, and, and provided this really neat, lightweight abstraction for a developer to take their application, wrap it up with all of its dependencies, and be able to deploy it on any Linux-based server. So you had developers everywhere using this cool new tool called Docker as a universal package manager. Um, and then they started to deploy Docker, and there were all these coordination challenges around service registration, discovery, networking, orchestration, really around challenges of now that you've got your app uh, or these independent little microservices, how do you manage them at scale? How do you manage them across hosts? How do you do networking across hosts? Um, the canonical problems then were, were as simple as how do I make a couple of these services running on two different nodes really talk to each other and turn those two services into a logical app? Um, more complex issues around them were how do I manage state in this environment? Uh, what does networking look like? Again, between data, between hosts, between data centers. Um, and so you, what you had was a bunch of projects and companies uh, that formed to help solve around some of these day, day zero problems of how do I actually create an app um, and manage it. And because of that, it was, a, it was sort of a gold rush to take advantage of this new platform shift. And there were sort of seemingly mm -hmm. millions of permutations of stacks that you could run, uh, that you could run uh, for your containerized app. Um, luckily, you know, over the last few years, we've seen some standardization. Uh, at very least, Docker has unquestionably emerged. The package format, you've got you know, Kubernetes, Mesos, and Swarm as the orchestrators of choice, uh, console or etcd for service discovery. Um, and so now that the building blocks are more set, the challenge is still around making all these different systems play nice together. Over and over again, you, know, you hear things as simple as taking a Docker compose file from the developer terminal and turning that into a running container in production. Um, is a broken is a broken workflow, and so there's no doubt that the community, uh, the open source community, will continue to work to solve some of these problems. Um, I'll say, you know, most of the juicy problems have been solved, and most of the major platforms have been won. Um, the one area I'm still excited about is solving multi-cloud. Um, you know, there, you know, there needs to be a platform that gives companies the ability to deploy across clouds, across platforms, and then manage and provide visibility into the health of those applications. You know, things like Kubernetes are an enabler of this, and uh, you know they'll, they'll serve as sort of a distributed runtime, a distributed fabric to deploy applications across clouds. But then to actually gain visibility and into the health of those systems is something that I think is really missing. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned going from that place where you're putting out fires constantly to having more stable infrastructure and having this place where companies can experiment rapidly, the employees feel comfortable, they have a lot of leverage, things are decoupled so they can roll out changes aggressively. I remember having a conversation like this last week. I interviewed Matt Klein, who works on Envoy, which is a Lyft application proxy, and and he talked about how when he arrived, I think when he arrived at Lyft, people were afraid to change code because they were just afraid that this was going to take down the entire system. They, were, they didn't feel like there was enough observability. They didn't feel like there was enough safety in a deployment. And over time, as particularly regarding Envoy, as he rolled that out, people got more comfortable and it was a you know massive advantage. So I, I guess I'll use that to segue, you know, if someone comes to you with an open source tool with traction, like let's let's take Envoy, 
for example, because we just did a show on it. It'll probably air before this episode airs. When you look at something like Envoy, it's this application proxy. It sits on all your servers in an infrastructure, and it proxies requests so that you have a unified communication tool. It gives you a unified load balancing layer. If somebody came to you with an open source tool that was like, this has some traction, or this is deployed at a company, is that traction enough of a reason to invest, or do you have to be able to see further down the line? Look, I think this gets into a lot of the questions around open source in general. And it's funny you know, that this is timely because we're looking at a similar project right now that's you know, born inside of one of these web scale properties. And it's been battle tested. There are people using it. There are people excited about it. But at the end of the day, though, you know, the goal with any technology, even though the world that we're living in is vastly different than it was maybe you know, 10, 15 years ago, the same rules apply. The goal with any technology is to become a standard. And once you become a standard, you've got, you have these value chains that coalesce around these standards. And once you're basically, you know, once you've codified your place in the stack, then there's a real unique opportunity to start extracting value. And that's how, you know, really big, meaningful infrastructure companies are born. So, you know, green shoots of traction and adoption are, you know, are a fantastic place to start. But the larger macro question is really about you know how how applicable how universal is the is the value prop and is this something that's universal and not only is it universal but is it you know is this classic is it 10x better than the substitute hmm. because in an open source world you know while anyone can take your code and improve on it and so you know you have to be especially as an investor you have to be very very careful or tread lightly in a sense of not giving into this incrementalism. And what, what might be good today, will it, will it persist over time and will the value remain of what you're doing? So, you know, I guess putting on the investor hat, whenever you're looking at a technology like Envoy, it's, you know, what is its role today? What does the stack look like tomorrow? And will, is this something that becomes more valuable over time? How could it basically ward off either homegrown solutions, different open source platforms? What does the stack really look like tomorrow? So these are all questions that we're wrestling with as investors and quite frankly makes infrastructure investing a bit of a challenge today. Well, absolutely. And so one of the ways that you just frame this is how much surface area does this open source tool eventually take up? And because obviously the more surface area it takes up, you know, you're building a market with a value of X and trying to capture some percentage of that market. That's the that's the adage for building platforms. And, you know, one analogy I think of here is Docker. And Docker is obviously this become this fundamental technology to application development. And yet it seems like the business model is still up in the air. As far as I understand, the economics of the company, the burn rate, they still have plenty of time. There's no threat. But, you know, I, I was at DockerCon and, and I remember having a lot of conversations with people like, is Docker going to get acquired by Microsoft? Like, what is there? You know, it's certainly not obvious where they're going and are they going to, going to, like, can Docker be obviated? You know, is the real platform Kubernetes? Mm-hmm. And and so it's it's interesting to look at that. And especially contrasting, like, I contrast that with, you know, more narrow investments that you could make, like where you're investing in very maybe a very specific observability tool like if some company came to you and said okay we're going to do we're doing distributed tracing we're going to master distributed tracing or even like we're going to master java distributed tracing like something yep. very narrow and specific in some sense that seems like a safer bet but maybe that's less of a venture investment so 
I don't know. Like, where do you see that sort of like narrowness versus platformness playing into how what makes a plausible venture investment? Absolutely. So this is the fundamental question I think facing most infrastructure investors is you know solve a very acute narrow problem. Basically, ingrain yourself in the stack and then expand. The question becomes, you know, when you position yourself in the stack, where are you more ripe to expand into different adjacencies? So again, with let's take the distributed tracing example. Distributed tracing could be a, a potentially an incredibly strategic area because you're instrumenting every part of the stack. So while at Redpoint, we actually had a chance to invest and work with a distributed tracing company, they're still in stealth. But you know, once you're in the critical path, there's all sorts of data you're extracting, whether it's you know sort of in-process logs, network calls that allow you to build a, a sort of comprehensive view of, of an application and its behavior and all the underlying systems. So with that example, you know you eventually start subsuming multiple systems that you're using for observability, whether that's you know your traditional infrastructure monitoring, whether that's your APM tool, whether that's actual logging. So that is a potentially incredibly strategic area because it's all about where you're deployed and what information and what data you have access to. Again, in many ways, infrastructure investing is no different than a lot of other investing where data is critical and data is the critical asset. What is your proprietary data source and what can you glean from that and what value can you deliver to the end user? That's the critical question. When you're looking down in the stack at more traditional utilities, same question. The reason past companies have struggled, I'd say, is because, you know, infrastructure vendors can subsidize the cost of the sort of management and deployment tooling and deliver a similar experience. So generally value is eaten from the bottom up. So this question is absolutely central to what we look at when we're investing in companies. And so I'd hesitate to say we have an answer, but it's central to a company's attractiveness when they have an easy path to to extend either up and down or east-west in the stack. Yeah, it makes sense. What about the RethinkDB example that happened recently? So this was an open source business model that was a developer tool. It didn't work out. It had some traction in the developer community, but the business model didn't really pan out. I don't know if you read that postmortem, but what were the lessons yeah, that you take from the Rethink from the RethinkDB situation? So when it comes to the question of open source and open source business models, I'm, I'm not quite a contrarian, but I am more optimistic than, than some VCs who just have given up on it and refuse to touch it. Um, you know, my, my philosophy is that you can be a successful, thriving open source company. It's just the time horizon is, is elongated and that these businesses through their growth curve are, are much more fragile. And so my, my hypothesis and thesis is that, that it's not that open source can't succeed. It's that it hasn't really been done right. For, for several years. And so, you know, to illustrate some of these challenges, I'm working on a new a new analogy. So bear with me a little bit. Tell me if I'm crazy. But the analogy is, is hunting versus farming. So in the days of proprietary software, you know, once you had a new technology and you found product market fit, it's really all about and going about going out and finding your customers as fast as you can and growing as quickly as possible. And as long as the market doesn't dry up, so long as there's buffalo and as long as there, a new technology doesn't come to displace you, so, so long as a better hunter doesn't come on your territory, you're going to be hap- fat and happy for a while. The point being, if you've got a good, great product and an eager market, you could extract value and grow really, really quickly. And we saw a number of companies that did this really well through the course of the 90s and early 2000s. Um, with open source, however, you know it's, it's a much more delicate song and dance. And your success, 
The problem is, of course, is your success isn't solely contingent on the merit of your capabilities as a product. Um, or to finish the analogies, uh, to finish the analogy, uh, your capabilities as a, as a farmer. So let's assume you're you're a great farmer. Um, you know you've got and everything goes well in your planting cycle. You know you use your seeds the right way, use your fertilizer. The weather's perfect. Um, even then, it's going to be months before you can reap the rewards of what you sow. Um, but then there's also all these elements out of your control: weather, birds. I really don't know what I'm talking about at this point. Um, but the point of all this is building, like just like farming and raising a successful crop, uh, building an open source company is really about fostering ecosystem and and, and nurturing nurturing your seeds. Um, and so in the, in that process of actually building an open source company, there are so many things that are outside of your control that directly impacts your viability as a project or technology or or directly a business. So people can take your code base and they can fork it, uh, they can make slightly better, and they can capitalize your market. A cloud vendor. And take your software and deliver it as a managed service, and you're hosed. Um, again, though, so to me, what this points to is that it's not that these businesses can't succeed because there's clearly been examples of successful open source companies. It's that a lot of the time these businesses take much longer, uh, and they're much more fragile. So in these businesses, I guess what, what, what I look for is, you know, is there community, and are, are they are the vendors are they building trust? Um, the key with open source, uh, you know, relates relates back to this idea of becoming a standard. Um, and so, you know, you have to believe that uh, once adoption is universal and you've ingrained yourself in the stack or you support some unique workflow, then you can start thinking about monetizing. Um, and by the way, monetizing doesn't mean, uh, you know, uh, delivering some sort of uh, delivering something that's not out of the op out of the open source. But it really relates to delivering some truly differentiated developer or ops experience that no one in the ecosystem can easily replicate. Um, so there are a few examples of this. I think HashiCorp is definitely one. Elastic is another. Um, there's certainly few and far between. But again, open source as a business model has really become sort of the the, the status quo um, only in the last sort of decade, half decade. So the the the, the proof is yet to be the, the the proof of the viability of these businesses is really yet to be determined. So I can think of a couple counterexamples to the long lead time to profitability though because like I think about Cloudera or Red Hat basically where you have the model of we're basically going to have a consulting shop that is an incubator for a open source platform that is so complex to set up that you need consultants for it so they have this very you know, there's this nice ecosystem that that they can develop within a company where they have consultants they have people working on the open source projects and there's a there's a nice relationship there. I don't know. Does that still seem like a plausible? I guess that's you know, maybe it's been a while since we've seen. Well, I think I think we still see some companies in that mold, right? In terms of the the Cloudera model, where you're you know you're sort of developing on the core, but also have yes. a, a, an army of consultants and sales yes. sales engineers. Is that an appealing model as an investor, or is that is that too I, much? Like the consult, I, I guess the consultant churn is like a that makes it a some execution I think, risk. I think it's a challenging model, and I think you know it speaks to the fact that it's you know it's Cloudera was what founded in two thousand eight. It's been almost ten years. They are without a doubt sort of the dominant force in open source analytics infrastructure. It's certainly a capital intensive model. You know, it's it runs counter to the traditional software build business where it's high gross margin. Right, high gross margin, high contribution margin. You know, but there's an argument to be made where you can build a business with sort of technical domain expertise, where you are the 
sort of you know trusted infrastructure vendor, you get to not only sort of reap the benefits of the ecosystem you own, which might be sort of HDFS and yeah. the Hadoop ecosystem, but also other things that come around. So if you've watched what happened with Spark, yeah. Cloudera's managed to co-opt a That's bunch right. of the value creation with Spark just simply because, hey, this is open source. We already have account control. We're going to come in and we're going to set up a Spark cluster for you and also own all the training and support that comes around with it. So yeah. again, this is another element that, that makes open source much more difficult is when you have an, when you have a company of Cloudera scale that has this account control that's built trust with traditional enterprises, it becomes much more difficult to dislodge. Now that begs mm. the question, can there be another Cloudera? I guess if there's a technology that comes around that's as transformational as HDFS, where you know the economies of learning are so steep where you know they can't encroach, then maybe. So Cloudera model sounds like you get kind of Accenture margins where you have the army of consultants that if they were just consultants on their own, they wouldn't be able to make as much as they can at Cloudera where they are Cloudera, you know, engineers, basically consultants. And then you also outlined how there's this opportunistic business opportunity where you can upsell people as the the stack changes, changes from from Hadoop to Spark. Oops, you want Spark? Well, you know, it's just going to cost you a little bit. And w- I mean, when I think about the platforms potentially that could mirror that sort of evolution, I think of Kubernetes, I think of TensorFlow. These are complex. I mean, they're complex in a certain way. Like they're complex enough that I can imagine needing or w- at least wanting an army of consultants. And there are a lot of like Kubernetes Kubernetes as a consultancy companies coming around or like we've got a fork of Kubernetes and it's got some proprietary layers on top of it. Do you find these businesses plausible as these are things like Ranch I think Rancher Labs, Apprenda is sort of doing this. Do you see these companies as analogs to the Cloudera type of companies? Not particularly. I think hmm. so I guess, you know, when you think about the companies you mentioned, there's sort of two schools of thought. You know, we're gonna come in and we're gonna help you, we're gonna be we're going to support and service open source Kubernetes, and we're going to take advantage of all the features that the open source community is adding on, and we're going to use the rate of innovation as a benefit and sort of draft off that and build a bunch of tooling and support and basically plug in the gaps, maybe in the management layer, where the core Kubernetes community isn't keeping up. And then there's another school of thought where, hey, there's a bunch of enterprise features where core Kubernetes has missed the boat and we're going to fork Kubernetes and we're going to have our own distribution. And that to me is a, is a challenging model in a cresting market where the rate of innovation is really, really fast. In general, you know, when you have a market and a product or a platform that's developing as quickly as Kubernetes, I think standing in front of that tidal wave is really, really challenging. And instead of basically forking that product and you know putting your own spin on it, you'd be much better served building out the supporting ecosystem for that, whether that's, you know, secrets management or, you know, some sort of... This is like Weave. Yeah, exactly. So I think those guys guys have a fundamental appreciation for open source done right and are basically building the tools and services to help you as a Kubernetes adopter be successful. And so I think that, to me, is the right strategy, whether that's going to, you know, whether that's going to create a company of venture scale return remains to be seen. I think that's challenging, but I think it's 
probably in terms of sort of, you know, long-term viability, that's probably a safer bet than working the main project and trying to live off that unless you're doing something that's so different and so value additive again this sort of 10x nature then i think it's challenging well these companies like weave for example who are focused on kubernetes tooling i think basically like networking around kubernetes and perhaps other container orchestration maybe mesos also i think and visibility an advantage of those companies is they get to sort of ride alongside the Kubernetes ecosystem, but they're not exposed to the risk of building directly on top of the Kubernetes ecosystem, like breaking changes to whatever they have. And also, they get the kind of opportunism that you mentioned earlier with Cloudera, where if they see a market opportunity, they have such intense domain expertise that they can perhaps seize that opportunity, and then then maybe their business delivers venture returns. So... I want to shift this conversation. I want to talk about the infrastructure layer because this is the thing that is the most exciting to me right now, (laughs) mainly just because we have Amazon Web Services, we have Google Cloud Platform, Microsoft, IBM, DigitalOcean. I mean, this layer is exciting for a number of different reasons, but the one that I always think of is how it brings out the philosophical differences between Amazon and Google, which are the market leaders. We're seeing this... I mean, the market is evolving so so interestingly because, you know, Google and, and Amazon are kind of, they're different. I mean, they're offering the same, there's overlap, but they are offering very differentiated product philosophies. And so, I mean, it sort of resists any particular analogy, but, you know, the, the closest analogy might be, oh, it's like Microsoft and Apple or something. Right. And, you know, that's a, actually a very apt analogy. The best explanation I've heard about this, and to give someone, you know, as weird as it might be, someone I've never met, but someone who I respect a ton, uh, Ben Thompson, a shout out on this was right after Amazon reInvent, he had a great podcast around how do you differentiate between AWS and GCP, Google Cloud Platform. Mm-hmm. And the fundamental difference was Amazon in its essence is a services company, Google in its essence is a product company, and the way they, they expose their cloud offerings mirror that. So what AWS does is they'll have primitives for compute, network storage, databases, even higher order services around sort of real-time streaming. They will always be exposed as sort of a standalone primitive that you can then go and build on top of. And they'll be about you know 75-80% complete. And then it's on you to sort of integrate it in your stack and build on it. Google in its essence is a, is a product company. And so the way you interact with their services is through sort of a, you know, a defined API that they control and they specify. And you consume those resources, like compute becomes an API resource, uh, storage, network, all these things are exposed through almost like a productized layer. You know, so in that sense, that analogy holds pretty closely in the sense that one is a platform, one is a product. And you know, I think there's plenty of room in the market for both to exist. It's just a matter of what your developers or what your ops team, I guess, in, in some instances is used to and what they're trained on. Most of the market, you know, because Amazon created it starting really in earnest in 2006, they were schooled on this stuff. And so this notion of very basic, boring primitives that you can build on top of holds. But more and more, we're seeing companies gravitate to this sort of fully baked productized version of what Google's offering. And so especially with as much cloud as they hold in, in areas like machine learning, there's an opportunity for Google to, to meaningfully win customers over. Hmm. I agree with that. I agree with most of that. I do think Ben Thompson is 
I think sometimes, I mean, so I love Ben Thompson. I love his podcast. I do think he gets wrapped up into the narratives of the companies a little sure. more than is apt. I think, like, if you pigeonhole Amazon as a services company, I mean, the thing is, like, these things are not mutually exclusive. Amazon could build, okay, Amazon's, you know, building out serverless. But on top of their serverless expertise, they could easily build the type of, like, really user-friendly APIs that that Google is is building like oh like a cloud vision api i mean the the google cloud vision api the which, you know google tra- right okay amazon is building out those like really simple apis to like identify an image or something mm-hmm. yeah so i i don't know it's interesting but the uh, I, I guess the uh, you know going back to this point it's sort of what what is your core competency and what what are you good at right and you know, if you want to go for sort of, you know, run of the mill, boring infrastructure, build on top of that and use some of these higher order enterprise enterprise services, Amazon's fantastic. If you want to basically, and again, this is speaking as someone who's never built an app on either of these platforms. <laughs> <laughs> so take this Me with neither. a grain of salt. Actually, this whole podcast should be taken with a grain of salt as someone who hasn't written a line of code in about eight years. <laughs> You know, if you want to commit to sort of a Google way of doing things and, you know, if I was building a company, sure, that sounds awesome, then the Google approach might make sense. But if you want to have a little, perhaps a little more customizability and a little bit more pain, then perhaps Amazon's the right, the vendor of choice in that sense. Hmm. Right. And how do you see... Microsoft, where does Microsoft take market share? I mean, as I understand, my simplistic understanding of where Microsoft takes market share is the the enterprise companies that are moving from Windows to the cloud. And it becomes, Microsoft already has a relationship with them. They're on Windows. It's a very natural transition. Is that the customer base that Microsoft is focused on, or is it wider? You know, if you spoke to me a few months ago, I probably would have said yes, that's the customer base. But to see the fundamental culture change in, within Microsoft around open source, around Linux, around cloud has been you know, pretty phenomenal. I don't think we've seen a recasting of a company in a more dramatic sense than what's happened within Microsoft in the last, you know, in the last couple of years. You don't want to forget that there's some pretty amazing engineers within those walls up in Redmond. And so... Oh, yeah. So I wouldn't, I would never handicap a race and not count Microsoft as a, as a dominant player. You know, with that said, I think what should scare Amazon and Google is the fact that from the app layer down, Microsoft is an incredibly compelling story. Most of the world is on Outlook and Excel, and these are tools of the trade that they use. And so when they could package and subsidize these apps with a cloud platform, it's a really compelling story. And so what wasn't lost on me was the fact that you know, I was interning for a hedge fund when I was in business school and I was, I was pitching a, I don't know if you should say this online, but a short of VMware. And it was stunning to me just how much of the world, specifically in between the coasts, was Windows Server and SQL Server and how many of those shops were basically held captive by Microsoft. And so when I think back to how much of the world is still running Windows, you know, it makes me think that if Microsoft is successful in transitioning even a little bit of that world onto the Azure platform, they're going to be a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, talking again about that opportunism that you articulated so well around what Cloudera can do with Spark, I mean, it's so obvious that this cloud space is just 
I mean, it's like evolution from thing to thing every six months, you know, Docker and then Kubernetes and then server. I mean, not that like people are massively adopting serverless, but the fundamental advancement that serverless offers. And we're just going to keep seeing these things time and time again. And when you're a company like Microsoft, you are positioned for opportunism. Yeah, no, absolutely. What about the other players like IBM, DigitalOcean? Where do these fit into the, like when you play out the the way that the infrastructure layer advances over the next 10 years, do you have a feel for how IBM and DigitalOcean and perhaps the other smaller cloud players fit in? So whenever I'm looking at anyone that wants to duke it out with one of the major cloud vendors, um, first I say good luck, um, but then I ask, you know, what's your edge or what can you deliver to a subset of, of customers that the big three can't? Uh, AWS is obviously the 800-pound gorilla. It moves fastest. Google is Google. It has the benefit of probably the best engineers and distributed systems and AI in the world working on delivering these services and similar experiences to the modern enterprise. And then there's Microsoft, who we chatted about, and, and these guys know enterprise better than, the, than almost anyone else. And they have a huge Windows and Office install base to milk and, and transition over to Azure. So looking at any new uh, rival cloud, potential rival cloud vendor, um, you know, what, what can they deliver that's different or better? What, do, what, what kind of experiences will they give to developers that the big three really can't? Um, so in my mind, DigitalOcean really nailed it. They won through simplicity, transparent pricing, and their expertise is really in marketing to developers. And, you know, one of the, they run one of my favorite blogs uh, and the content that those guys put out targeting their, their audience is fantastic. And so they've won... Um, they've developed an incredible brand uh, for developers, and that, that's, that, that, I believe, can stand the test of time. Um, with IBM, I'm not, sure, I'm not really sure. I, I guess they have Watson. Um, so anyway, I guess you know, that might be an interesting edge. Um, I guess the, 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 the macro point here is that you know, it's going to be the big three, and they're, they're, they're really sucking up all, all the oxygen out of the market. And so in my mind, unless there's some massive discontinuity on the horizon – that you know fundamentally remakes enterprise computing. I don't see how the dominance of those three big players can be can be challenged. Um, now you know to get back to your earlier point about serverless and what's next. Um, to me, serverless really signifies the conclusion of the first wave of software development as we've known it, and it's giving giving rise to the second, which is all about AI or sort of this idea of real time distributed intelligence. Um, so hear me out. Here's, a, here's another here's another theory. Um, but you know, sort of back in the '60s and '70s, to write a program, you needed to be you needed to be an expert uh, in processors, compilers, operating systems. Then you had a couple companies like Microsoft came around and abstracted a bunch of that complexity with operating systems. Then in the '90s, you had you know the rise of Java and object-oriented programming and application servers, and suddenly app development arrived in the enterprise. Um, then in 2000s, you know, develop, software development was further democratized through cloud computing, uh, things like Ruby on Rails, Mongo. Where literally anyone can, uh, over a course of a month, go go learn how to code and be pretty a pretty facile developer. And so now, you know, sitting in 2017, we're arriving at the serverless world, where the logical atomic unit of compute becomes a function. And so what that means really is, when you know how this unit of compute behaves, uh, you know exactly what it's supposed to do. You can start stringing together these daisy chains of functions and build pretty sophisticated workflows and apps. So in this world, the world we're coming to really is that any business analyst can write sophisticated apps at, at apps that scale um, with <laughs> with requests uh, because a lot of these uh, because these distributed runtimes are actually built on top of AWS and Google. Um, 
So, you know, concurrently sort of what's happening is that all the hard al algorithmic work, uh, a bunch of sort of the core compiler and processor things that were happening in the 60s and 70s uh, are now actually, you know, we're seeing uh, a renaissance and resurgence of that. And so in the, in the halls of universities and across, you know, bigger organizations like Facebook and Google and all this research and development really has to do with AI. And to me, this is sort of the second generation of software and which is all about building, you know, these intelligent systems. Um, and you hear, you know, we hear a lot about people, uh, we hear a lot of people talking about AI as this fundamentally new architecture. And what that means is that the infrastructure that supports these systems will be different. Um, sure, it'll borrow a lot, a lot on the innovation of this previous cycle, but also a lot of the building blocks will be fundamentally different. We're already seeing different processors, compilers, languages, frameworks, uh, model serving systems that are purpose built for these AI workloads. Again, you know, the model for the future is Google. And if you look, if you want to see what the rest hmm. of the world will look like in five to 10 years, you look at Google. Um, and so today, you know, you look at Google's data center and they have a bunch of workloads that obviously run on traditional CPUs. They've got a bunch of, that, of uh, ML AI oriented workloads that run on GPUs. Um, but now they also have this thing called the TPU, the TensorFlow Processing Unit, which is uh, a special purpose built system on a chip for tra training and serving machine learning. Um, and it won't be long until new systems and platforms emerge that support intelligent software of tomorrow. And I think that's ultimately what I'm most excited about and looking out for. Hmm. Yeah, I just did a show with Peter Levine that airs today from Andreessen Horowitz, and he was talking about this vision he has where computing gets distributed into self-driving cars and the drones, and basically these are the data centers of the future, and so everything just gets distributed among these, and then the job of the cloud server gets relegated to data intensive training because you know you get the low latency uh, responses from the data centers that are sitting in the self-driving car sitting outside your window rather than having to make a bunch of hops to an actual data center and he was describing just how this this movement of computers everywhere and into a peer-to-peer -peer network system together with the pressures that machine learning puts on our current model of server architecture together will will push us towards something that looks much different than what we have today. And I think you alluded to that. You know, I do enjoy talking to VCs about infrastructure because they have a different type of skin in the game when it comes to opinions about technology. See, because, I mean, if something new comes out, open up Hacker News and and you're an engineer, you can tinker around with it for a while. It doesn't really cost any money for you to tinker around with it. You can build a little project with it. A VC has to put money where their mouth is if they think something is cool, and they have to project how that thing will look against the environment as things evolve into the future. And it's like, you know, there has been this massive explosion of, like, podcasts by venture capitalists, and, like, some of them are not that great, but other ones are, like, pretty entertaining because a lot of times they have to project themselves into the future and talk about computing in the future, and it's it's... It's fun. It's it's fanciful. It's futuristic. <laughs> Any other adjectives that begin with an F? Um, explain yeah. your investment thesis when it comes to putting money into cloud native technologies. Yeah. Well, look. I mean, so I'm now at a fund called Amplify Partners, which is you know dedicated to working with technical founders that are solving some of the most complex challenges across enterprise infrastructure, security, other emerging enterprise technologies such as AI, and so at this stage. Certainly, you have to have a directional sense of where the world is going and what it's going to look like. But at the end of the day, you know, you're just trying to find, you know, extraordinary entrepreneurs 
who are, are convicted enough to actually give their life to a problem that they're solving. So, you know, if I was a growth stage investor, I'd say, yeah, I have a, you know, I have a, I have a directional sense of what the stack of 2020 is going to look like. Now, you know, maybe I'm taking a pass on the question, but I say I defer to the guys that are, you know, in the PhD program at Stanford or Berkeley and are working on problems that are 10 years out. And so going and talking to them, thinking about the world, how they're seeing it, that's core to the investment thesis. At the end of the day, you know, I definitely agree with guys like Peter who say that, you know, computing tends to evolve and it tends to ebb and flow between centralized and distributed, centralized and distributed. The moment you start thinking you're at the end of an innovation cycle, another shoe drops and things open up. I think the most important thing as a, as a VC or as an investor in general is just to keep an open mind and to be people oriented and to have them guide you. Does does the cloud native space feel overinvested in right now? Like, are there too many companies that are chasing too few customers, but the venture capitalists are willing to go after them because they're seeing things from different angles? They're seeing the expected value I'd differently. Say, Perhaps. No, oh, go ahead. You know, I think at the outset of every platform shift, there's always an overinvestment period. I mean, venture venture capital in general loves periods of rapid change because. Yeah, that's when new technologies emerge as standards, and then you have entire new value chains organized around them. And so you get you know, these winner-take-all uh, or winner-take-most companies emerge. Um, so at the outset of any transform- uh, tech transformation, you naturally have a lot of smart people that are trying to fill gaps and position themselves to be these winner-take-all platforms. I'd say now, you know, if you talk to investors, there's certainly an apprehension around cloud native. A lot of it has to do with an apprehension that's inherent to open source and just in general infrastructure. There's these two giant deflationary trends that have their their paws all over IT, which is, you know, AWS and, and other cloud vendors and open source. They're drastically driving the price down of all infrastructure technologies. So you have that as a backdrop. Around cloud native specifically, I'd say, you know, there was a platform company, Docker, and then there's a platform project called Kubernetes. And then so there are companies that are trying to be sort of a red hat for Kubernetes or sort of co-op that project. I don't mean co-op in a negative way. And so, you know, inevitably there will be money to be made. Will there be a VMware in this space? I don't know. You know, does Docker have a chance to be sort of a GitHub or Atlassian type company? Absolutely. And then there's going to be value to be made around, you know, around deployment, around management, as there always is, around storage and networking. I don't, again, I think with every abstraction layer you move up, the opportunity to sort of extract value and build a larger value chain around yourself gets smaller because it gets abstracted further down into the platform. And so with serverless, you know, we're seeing a bunch of companies that are offering, you know, functions, lifecycle management. And so, again, like I ask, I always ask these companies, you know, what do you do that the platform vendor doesn't? What workflow do you enable that doesn't exist today? How can you build a standard around that workflow? And to me, these are the fundamental questions. What sort of new behavior do you enable that's, that doesn't exist today? How do you shift the paradigm in your favor? Because if you're just tagging along, I'd say, you know, you're sure you could build something successful. Will it be venture scale? Probably, I, I'd say I, I have doubts. I mean, the deflationary trends are interesting in that, you know, maybe you see less for a given company, you see less capital going directly into something like infrastructure because AWS, the deflationary trends of that. But at the same time, if it opens up the budget, and I think you're seeing this, when it opens up the budget, 
companies are more liable to just purchase if, if they see anything if they see some apm tool that saves their developers a little bit of time that time translates so easily to money because the developer's time is so valuable that they just purchase it instantly and that's why like you look at this you know that cloud native map that you made that I'll put in the show notes you see all these tools that people do want to buy and they've got great arr properties a lot of them have good amount of stickiness and they save developers time and it's like well why why not buy these although at the same time i think you make a really good point like at that point are they venture investable maybe not and then like that supports the further trend of the breaking down of the wall between seed investing and venture investing because if something is not going to deliver venture returns then you need to give it a different style of investment. And so so I mean I think it's the same thing that's happening in consumer companies where you know you you have smaller investments with perhaps smaller expectations and it is maybe perhaps a frothier environment because it's harder to tell what's going to pan out and how into what degree it's going to pan out to what degree it's going to be profitable. But yeah, I mean ever ever so like for you know for the past 3 years where people have been talking about this whether you talk about it it's oh it's a bubble or it's a risk bubble or whatever I've been I've always just throughout this entire time been like no, it's just a change in the economics offered by venture returns on on technology investments. Yeah, and just to go back to a point you said earlier around around developer tools and how, you know, the sort of tried and true thing is you can't make money selling to developers. Yes, it is difficult to to make money selling to anyone who doesn't own the budget, but you know, in a world where software is not only core to your business, is your business, you know, tools that sell to developers are no different than ERP. You know, these are tools that help right. you run and build your That's business. That's right. Yeah. And so especially talking about a world where, you know, in my thesis, if serverless opens up programming to not only, you know, your like front end JavaScript guy, but also guys in marketing and guys in sales, like code is going to be everywhere. And so you're going to need tools that support and monitor and make that code better or optimize it. And so, you know, developer tools will cease to mean developer productivity and they'll span the entire organization. So again, I think part of it is a taxonomy problem around what does developer tool actually mean? And I think the, the definition needs to be refined as software eats more and more parts of the organization. I mean, look, I, I definitely have some thoughts about this and all of Silicon Valley is obsessed with this notion of the power law where, you know, you've got one company that pays for all these failures and it's this failure culture. But if you specifically in enterprise and when you're looking at companies that are building strategic IP and when you're dealing with companies that have a bounded total addressable market for what they're doing, the outcome of distributions in my mind and some of the data backs us up is, is actually a much more, it's much more akin to a normal curve as opposed to a power law distribution. So, you know, if you look at the companies that have been venture backed and produced outcomes over $2 billion in the last decade, there's something like maybe 10 of them. And then maybe another in the teens of companies between one and two billion. And a lion's share of the returns are really made in the companies between sort of a hundred or 200 to a billion. And by the way, the incidence of zeros is far fewer as well. So when you look at that distribution of outcomes, there's a lot of money to be made working with companies that solve a particular problem for a particular customer segment and are super successful at servicing and delivering value to those customers as opposed to something where everyone is feeling this pain and you're you know you're servicing everyone hmm. so that's that's sort of core to my belief as a as an investor so there are all these companies making the quote unquote digital transformation whether you're talking about 
a company with a ton of resources like GE or maybe State Farm or just, you know, legacy companies like, you know, I think insurance companies, fertilizer companies, these companies where they're finding out that they're ultimately software companies, like maybe they're software plus, they're a software company that sells insurance or software company that sells fertilizer or whatever. What areas of the cloud native stack are these types of companies adopting? Are they adopting it aggressively? Are they destined to adopt cloud technology or are they just going to stay on some on-premise thing in perpetuity? What's your sense for how the large enterprise is shifting? I mean, do these companies just die eventually and then they get supplanted by companies that think about themselves as software first? I don't think so because at the end of the day, what's missing or what's not missing, but what's critical in building any business's deep domain expertise of your customers, your vendors, everyone in the value chain. Software at the end of the day is an enabler. It's a distribution model. You know, it's how you deliver your value. It's how you instantiate value, but it's not like the relationships you have in business, you know, I think supersede software or the delivery of software. So I think in a vacuum, like you have a company that's one that's software oriented, that understands the value of Going cloud native, that means they could deliver software faster. That means their application is more resilient. That's what it all translates to at the end of the day. Like cloud native for cloud native sake is a waste of time. Cloud native for having an application that's more resilient. So you're not Delta or United that grounds a t- you know, multi-million dollars worth of flight because you have a computer error and cloud native because you can deliver faster and innovate faster than your competitors. That matters. So there's, there's a business value associated with all of this. That's why it's important. It's not important because, you know, you're an ops guy and you're excited about Kubernetes and like, hey, look, we're running Kubernetes, but none of this shit works. It matters because like there's actual business value associated with all of these technologies. Hmm. And so what we look for, zooming outside of the cloud native ecosystem, you know, what we look for when we talk to entrepreneurs who are operating application companies or building a SaaS company is do they understand the ramifications of CICD? Do they value being able to deliver more and faster than their competitors? Do they understand the value of actually being first to market? And that's how all these things translate into actual business value. So that's what's critical here. It's not the fact that you're using the latest and greatest technology. It's the business case for all this stuff that matters. And that's why it's important for not only VCs, but you know everyone to understand what's out there and understand the infrastructure stack that you're building on top of, understanding how it evolves and understanding what you want to accomplish. Again, like the most important takeaway is, you know, I had the fortune of, of working with the guys at Datadog very early back in 2011. And when I talk to them now, you know, I ask them like, why have you guys succeeded? Why, while a bunch of monitoring companies have since either struggled or failed. And they say, we haven't written a line of code that was anything more than our customers actually derive value from. At the end of the day, it's all about building value, understanding what value you're bringing to the table and capitalizing on that. So to me, that's why all this stuff is important. It's not, you know, it's not important in and of itself. It's a means to an end. Hmm. Okay. I think that's a great way to conclude. Lenny, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much, Jeff. It was a lot of fun. Okay, great. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. 